Well, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians, if you would, Ephesians chapter 5. And you know what? Yeah, that would, that would be a good thing to do right now. If you've been with, with us for any part of the series, you've known that, uh, you've heard me say at least, that uh, God has detailed His master plan in the book of Ephesians. And as we know that, that from Paul's books that he writes, he's wrote, written many in the New Testament, he always begins with doctrine, and then he, began, then he slams in the application. And slam, I'm being really nice, that's like my term is, he, just, he doesn't leave us wanting, okay, here are all these high and lofty thoughts, all these high and lofty truths, now how do we live? This is how you live. This is how you do it. Well, breaking it down even further in Ephesians, the second half of the second half of Ephesians, are you doing your math? I hope you are. He showed us a way how we, how we deal with other Christians. We don't live on an island. It's not just God, me, and, the, and whatever else comes. No, it's God, me, and my neighbor. And this morning, we're going to be studying probably the closest relationship that we have with another neighbor, our spouse. I joked earlier to, to Doobie last week, I said, you know what, I should probably be gone one more week so you can preach this. But now I'll, I'll, I'll play the man, I'll play the man. This is probably the most controversial subject in the book of Ephesians. And it just is. In our society, it is so, it's a hot button. It's a hot button. And it hadn't been so until the advent of feminism came into the Western civilization. Well, you ask, well, why is it so controversial, Danny? Why, why, why is it such a big deal? Because, and I quote, it's because the text on the surface at least seems to suggest a hierarchical structure of authority within the home by which the law of God, the husband is said to be the head of the house and the wife is called to be in submission to her husband. Yes, it's the S word. But there's also an L word that goes right along with that S word. The late R.C. Sproul is a great help in explaining the argument, and I will say the feminist argument. The argument by feminists is that Paul wrote these instructions not by the inspiration from the Holy Spirit, but from his own view from the standpoint of male arrogance. Chauvinism, whether it be in, be in Paul or other men, assumes that there is in, an innate intrinsic superiority of the male gender and a corresponding intrinsic inferiority, inferiority, excuse me, of the female gender. There is a rational for, rationale for calling wives to be submissive to their husbands if this assumes a feminine inferiority. 
the objection is twofold. It's based on two assumptions. And these are the assumptions. The first, that Paul wasn't writing and being led by the Holy Spirit of God. He was writing what he wanted to write. And this assumption is connected to how one views Scripture. How do you view Scripture? Is it something that man wrote to gain power? Or does it come from the mind of God Himself so we understand how we live, how we should live? If it is the Word of God, this argument can be dismissed. And I say, yes, it is dismissed. But that's my, my belief. Understanding that the person believing it is not Scripture, it's not scriptural, if you believe that, that view is against the Holy Spirit Himself. If you believe that, you are against the Holy Spirit of God. The second assumption is that to teach the subordination of the wife to the husband automatically carries the implication of feminine inferiority. And that assumption is clear, clearly invalid. Clearly invalid. Though, and I will be very honest here, there are countless men who have chauvinistically taken this passage and drawn erroneous conclusions and assumptions from this text. They use it to beat down But the text itself does not warrant this, not at all. Because a person is given a subordinate position in a given structure, hear me, in a given structure that involves a division of labor does not carry with it the necessary, necessary implication of inferiority. Now, no matter what you think of our current president and vice president, we don't believe that the vice president is any less, any less inferior to the president. Children, they're not inferior to their parents, are they? They're not. Just because they're under the parent's authority? Now, please hear me. Think with me. I want you to think biblically. The best model that we have for this, this is to be found in the Trinity itself. It's in the economy of redemption. Think of this, the economy of redemption. The Father sent the Son. The Son died for us. The Son sends the Spirit. We insist, we insist that this is true. The Son is subordinate to the Father. The Spirit is subordinate to the Son and the Father. Yet at the same time, we insist and we must approve that the Son, the Spirit, and the Father are co-eternal. They're co-eternal, co-essential, and equal in power and dignity. They are all one, but yet in salvation, there's a hierarchy. The Son is, is not inferior to the Father, and the Spirit is not inferior to the Son and the Father. 
okay. Another objection. I'm sorry, I'm hitting all the objections first because I want to, I want to let you understand that we have to know what the Word of God says and the arguments against it. Another objection that Paul's teaching in Ephesians contradicts his teachings in Galatians. Now, I'm going to have you turn to Galatians. It's, if you're in, in Ephesians, you only have to turn back just a little, a little bit. Now, for this to contradict itself, this would have to mean that Paul was confused. Maybe he'd taken a few many stones to the head. I don't know. Or in a span of six years, Galatians was written around six years before he wrote Ephesians, the apostolic uh, teaching had changed. Well, we know that that's not the case. I want you to turn to Galatians 3.28. 3.28, and it'll be on the screen here. Paul wrote, and this is an argument that many choose to use. Now, this is used also when, it's when elders are called to be male, male only. Females will, those who uh, choose an egalitarian uh, view, they will look at this verse and they say, look what this verse says. It says, there are neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, is Paul saying at the moment of conversion that God demolishes the distinction between male and female? The obvious answer is no, but let me argue this. If so, he's caught in a contradiction that is impossible for him to get out of. If someone holds to this belief, then Paul's also not only confused about gender, but also about slaves and free men. And next week, God willing, we'll look at that relationship as well. Well, what then's the answer? Can, can both be right? Hear me, when you read your Bible, there's one thing you have to learn, you have to remember. A word that starts with C. Context Context, context, and context is king. In Galatians, Paul's discussing the important question of salvation by faith in Christ. He's not talking about the roles. He's talking about faith in Christ. In verse 26, he writes, and it will be on the screen, but in verse 26 of Galatians 3, for in Christ Jesus you were all sons of God through faith, asserting that only, it is only by faith that anyone is included into God's family, that only by faith is anyone able to be with Christ. Only by faith. So whether you're Jew, whether you're Greek, whether you're male, whether you're female, whether you're slave or free, salvation is available to all. So therefore, Paul is not speaking about the, the, the roles, but he's speaking about salvation himself. Ephesians is speaking about roles. If you have been saved, if you have trusted in Christ and been sealed by the, by the Spirit of God, because of this truth, we, 
you have been called to walk a way that is worthy of your walk. And we do this only as verse, chapter 5, verse 18 tells us to be filled with the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit of God, which supernaturally leads us to verse 21 of chapter 5, which we read last or two weeks ago, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're to submit to one another. Then how in the world does a woman or a wife, excuse me, the wife submit to her husband? How does this work? Well, this morning's passage addresses this topic of marriage. Now, if you're not married or you're, you know, you're already checking out, you're going, ah, you know what, this doesn't, this doesn't relate to me, I challenge you to listen. For those of you who are married, who will soon be married, someday want to be married, who have friends and family who are married, this passage informs us what it's like, how we how we just, how we're living, how we live in a Spirit-filled marriage. Lord God, as we begin this study, I ask You to give us the ability to see and to understand how a marriage is to operate. Lord God, it is truly countercultural. But it is how you have designed it to be. I pray that by understanding what your word declares, that it strengthens all of those who hear it. May all marriages become stronger because of this truth. Whether they may be marriages that are sick whether they be marriages that are treading water or marriages that are outstanding. Lord, it is your desire that they thrive. May my words be clear. And may you open our hearts to hear what your spirit has to say. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me for the reading of this morning's passage? It's found in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. And if, it's, if you need a Bible, I would invite you to look along at page 978 on the Blue Bible. If you need one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. This is the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherished it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, our big idea this morning is this. In this passage, Paul provides instructions to Christian couples on how they must live together in marriage, not as the current culture dictates, but counterculturally, derived from the example and the model that is seen between Christ and the church. Well, I begin with a question. How do we mutually submit to one another in reverence of Christ? It's a pretty important question. I'll answer it for you by putting another's needs before your own. By serving one another. Instead of making sure that we're a notch or two above someone else, it should be, as one man has said, it needs to be a race to the bottom. We need to be racing to find the point to where we can serve another. The example, it's always Jesus. But when he washed the disciples' feet, while they were arguing who was the greatest, Christ put himself in the position of the lowest slave and washed their feet the night before he went to the cross. Now, in certain points of our lives, we must all live under the chain of authority. For me, I'll use myself as an example. I'm under the authority of our local sheriff and our police department. I'll even say highway patrol for Tim's sake. I also live under the authority of the United States government. God has placed authorities over us for our own good. It says it in the Scriptures. We can't get away from it. In Ephesians, we see this in three groups. We see it in wives in submission to their husbands, children in submission to their parents, and slaves or employees in submission to their masters or their employers. And since we're speaking of this, the institute of marriage today, we just have to understand that a female, a woman, is in submission to her husband 
It's what the Word says. And it is male and female. Male and female. Well, we start today with the wife's responsibilities. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, notice what it does not say. It does not say obey. That word is not in the Greek text. That is a different word. Children are to obey. Slaves and employees are commanded to obey, but the wife is told to submit to her husband, and not another woman's husband. It's to her own husband. In the Greek language, submit is written in a way that's it's what's called the middle voice. And what that means, it's, it's the subject performing the act themselves. The wife is not being forced to submit here. This is an act of her will. It's a voluntary action. Wives are being asked to recognize the ordered structure that God has put in place. God has put it there. As to the Lord, believe me, this does not put the husband on the plane of Jesus. But you submit because of the Lord. It's His will that you submit. And if you want to honor the Lord, one of the most concrete ways that you can do this is be in submission to your husband. If a woman is contentious and refuses to follow the leadership of her husband... She's in a state of rebellion. Not only against her spouse, but against her Savior. I can't stress that enough. This is the Lord's will. And look, before we move on, I want to clarify something. When we're called to submit, to obey and follow an authority, whether it be government, law enforcement, church leadership, we're told in the whole counsel of God, that, of Scripture, that we are ultimately submissive to God. So it is God who we submit to. And if a leader asks you or tells you to do something that is contrary to the Word of God, you must obey who? God. You must obey God rather than man. The fact is, it's a clear line. And if someone asks you who is an authority of you to do something that God has not commanded in His Scriptures, you must disobey So that means that we better know our scriptures. We better understand them. And again, like the apostles, when they were confronted by both religious and secular leaders, we must say, we must obey God rather than man. Ladies, 
If your husband asks you to do something that is forbidden in the Word of God, you show your obedience by, to Christ by saying, no. But the reverse is true. If your husband asks and leads you and wants us in a, as a family unit or you as a, as a married couple to, to keep a commandment of God, you need to follow his leadership. Now, does this mean that there's no discussion? No. You understand that in the house that I live in, there's one that's very much smarter than I am. And she's pretty wise. And I ask her many, many times, what would you do here? What, what do you think about this? And after I go, why didn't I think of that? I listen. We need each other's wisdom. In Genesis 1 and 2, when Adam was created and then Eve was created from his rib, Adam was given a, a mandate, and it was says to have dominion over the earth. And do you know what he was also given? He was also given a helper to have dominion over the earth with. Now, Adam was king over creation, and he was given what? A queen to rule with him. That is a major difference. A queen is a major difference than a slave girl. One and the other, they don't mix. There's a gigantic difference between a queen and a slave. Well, back to the wife's role. The general principle is that you need to do all that you can to bend over backwards if you must to follow the leadership and authority of your husband. A wife isn't free to not follow his lead because she doesn't agree with it. Or she might find that nah, I'm inconvenienced by this decision. It's something I wouldn't really want to do. Why? Well, the reason spelled out for us. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But we have to ask then, well, what does the word head mean here? What is, what is God talking about here? What, or what's Paul writing about here? Headship involves authority. It's authority. It's the leadership. Some have tried to argue that it means that it's the source of where it's coming from. Like it's the head of a river where we know the Kern River comes from Mount Whitney. It's not talking about that. Nowhere in Scripture does the head mean that particular thing. It doesn't mean the beginning of something. Nowhere in the Greek language of the first century does this mean anything like that. It is always the authority. A head means the leader. Now hear me. Christ doesn't lead his church as a tyrannical dictator. 
but he does lead. The husband is responsible for the leadership of his wife and his family. And with that leadership comes accountability. Husbands, you will have to answer to God for the way that you led your family. Husbands, you are responsible to God of how you treated your wife. Was it selfishly? Was it slavishly? Ladies, I hope that gives you relief. But the difficulty can be, and I know that this is a fact, there isn't an escape clause here. What I mean is, the Bible doesn't say submit only if, only if he makes perfect decisions. Only if he loves me perfectly. Only if he's a knight in shining armor. No. Husbands all fall short. We all need a Savior. But it does say submit. And this is where many husbands prefer to stop reading. You'd like me to stop now, skip this passage, the rest of it, and go on to employees and employers, right? Nope, we've got to give equal opportunity. We now come to the husband's responsibility. And we'll quickly notice that it doesn't involve exercising the right to lead. It doesn't involve that elbow that some of you might have given your wife when we began reading this. It doesn't say put a sign over your door of Ephesians 5.22. Now, I want to talk to the ladies just a little bit more. I'd venture to say that none of you would ever object to be having, being under the leadership of your husband if he was Christ, right? No, that's the, he's the perfect. He's perfect. But they aren't. They aren't Christ. Your husband is not Christ, and yet wives are called to submit. But as one commentator has written, and I quote, speaking about the next verses, but the responsibility that is given to the men here is terrifying. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. A theologian writes, and I quote, would a woman be afraid to submit herself to a man who loved her as much as Jesus loved the church? Would a woman fight and kick and scream against the leadership of a man who is willing to give his lifeblood to do anything he could to save her life? The kind of rule that the husband is to have over his wife is to be modeled on the leadership of Jesus. And speaking of the lack of escape clause, husbands, the Scriptures do not say love your wife only when she deserves it. 
It doesn't say, love your wife when the dinner's cooked, when the kids are clean, when they're quiet, when they're dressed, and when she looks like she did the first time that you fell in love with her. MacArthur writes, a husband is not commanded to love his wife because of what she is or is she is not. He is commanded to love her because it is God's will for him to love her. God's will. Husband, if everything that was appealing about your wife was to vanish, it's still your obligation. It still remains. Love her. Well, how did Christ love the church? We know well, he, he died for her. Think with me. For those for who Christ died, were they always or were they submissive to him? Have you always been perfect and been ready to accept Christ? No, we, we sang the truth earlier. Were you always or were we always in lockstep with his will? How did God respond to his people before Jesus came? How did he respond to, to those who lived in the time of Hosea? Hosea commanded, or God commanded Hosea to marry a prostitute. Why? Because it's how Israel, how Judah treated God. Hosea was a picture. And then what's, what's Gomer do, Her, the wife of Hosea? She turns from his faithful love. She has children out of wedlock. She leaves him. She spurns his love. And yet Hosea buys her back and takes her back in to his home. That's how much God loves his people. Did Jesus lay down his life for a people who loved him? No, it says we were enemies of God, and yet he still died for us. And this type of love is deeply seated. It's not only emotional, it's thoughtful. It's not only thoughtful, but I don't mean it's it's well thought out. That's what I mean by it. It's more than that, it's purposeful. God chooses to love when we fall. He has purposed to do that. And He loves even when that love is not returned. Love is spontaneous. It happens without thinking about it. And it's self-sacrificing. For, for a husband, what can this look like? It's more than laying your life down for. It's often giving up your wants. I don't think there's a man in this room who would not step in front of a bus or step in front of a bullet for his wife. But that might be the easy part. What's it entail? It might be spending time with her instead of always being with the boys. It could be possibly going to the, to the beach instead of going to the mountains on vacation. Giving up your wants 
for hers. It could even mean this, taking the control of the television and passing it over and letting her watch what she wants, what she wants, and even staying in the room and watching it with her and interacting with her. Now that's love. But to truly love her as Christ loved the church meaning, means that you go deeper than that. Christ did and does care for our physical needs, but he died that the church would be purified, sanctified, and made holy and be set apart. Verse 26 tells us that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Paul's alluding to the image of the marital covenant that Yahweh made in Ezekiel, where the Lord told his people, and I I read the scripture here. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your, your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into the covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with the embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. The church isn't cleansed here by literal water, although it is a picture of baptism, but it's what Christ did for us on the cross. He died. He shed his blood. And through that blood, you were washed clean. The Word of God explains this reality, and by believing this truth, you are washed clean. His blood cleanses us from all sin. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. It's a picture. It's a picture. Such a beautiful thing when we see a bride walk down the aisle. They're radiant. They're gorgeous. And that's what Christ wants for his church. And this will happen at the end of time. Husbands, we need to wash our wives and our children in the word continually. How are we changed? We're changed through the Spirit by, by the word of God. Just as Jesus wants only what's best for his bride, we should want what's best for ours too. 
Husbands, look at your wife, what she can be, what she will be, what she should be, and pray and work with her, love her, so that she can become that. This love also must be caring. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Well, how do we love our bodies? We make sure our needs are met. Of course, we make sure that we eat the right things, Hopefully we get enough exercise and we get enough sleep and those are the basic needs. And husbands, if you're able, and I truly say that, if you're able to be able to do that, you're responsible for the needs of your wife and her family. It's on you. You have to make sure that your family is taken care of. But there are also needs of encouragement. There are needs of deep friendship. There are needs of intimacy. Let me ask you a question. Does your wife know that she's cherished? Is she being nourished by your words and your actions? Love your wife more than yourself. Why does God provide for his bride? Because we are members of his body. And how did Christ acquire us? By laying down his life. I know, familiarity, right? He laid down his life. He laid down his life. He laid down his life. He gave up his residence in glory. Coming to earth, not as one who was waited on, but what? As one who was a servant. The last way that a husband's love should manifest itself is that this love is unbreakable. Paul takes us back to the beginning where God was the original officiant at the first marriage ceremony. He quotes Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Hold fast is a picture of two things being joined. If you're, if you're a metal worker, it's a picture of two pieces of metal being welded together. If you're a woodworker, it's a picture of two pieces of wood being joined together with Slow, slow moving epoxy, slow curing epoxy, which is the real good kind, and it takes it and it's just not going to move once it's done. It's laminated. And do you know what? If those two pieces are broke apart, the bond does not break, it's the two pieces. They're irreversibly damaged. And that's how a marriage union should be. So close, so tight. 
but you're one. It's a union of two people, not annulling the identities of man and woman, but they become so close, they become one in mind, have the same concerns, and together they have the same passion. They are indeed one. There they come. The names are synonymous. It's James and Darlene. It's Joel and Nicole. It's those folks, you're, you're together. The truth had been hidden in plain sight since our parents just first walked the earth. And Paul writes, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's God's hidden purpose. What's, that's what a mystery is. Well, how has it been revealed? What is it? It's the bond it's the bond and the union between a husband and the wife prefigured. It prefigured the closeness and the intimacy in which, character, which characterizes the church's relationship with Christ in the new covenant. A marriage pictures Christ in the church? Yes, it does. Why do you think Satan is so active to try to destroy marriages? That picture is overwhelming. I mean, think about it. It shows how much Jesus loves us and just how intimate He wants and wishes to be with His people. It also shows how intimate we need to be with our spouse. But it doesn't get better unless you strive to make it so. And how do you begin? By being filled with the Spirit. By being controlled by the Spirit of God. Well, the summary. Paul concludes this section with these words, and he says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In my reading this week, I came across a paragraph that defines, I think, mankind's plight, maybe even man's plight, more than a woman, but a woman's plight as well. One, the commentator wrote this, and I quote, probably the most fragile mechanism in the whole creation is the male ego. One of the most difficult things to admit or to understand is that there is probably nothing that a man wants more from his wife than her admiration. There's probably nothing that a woman wants more from her husband than his attention, taking her seriously and treating her with the greatest dignity. Here, what we are getting at this, it's the question of respect. If I exercise my head, headship over my wife in a tyrannical way, I'm not respecting my wife. I'm not loving her either. If my wife gives, us, gives slavish obedience to me without any love, she's not respecting me. And the whole basis of the relationship is built upon love, cherishing and respecting one another. 
Are you submitting to one another? Are you submitting to the will of God? I want to ask those who are married, who will soon be married, someday want to be married, who have, or who have friends and family who are married, how do you stand regarding this passage? Is there some work to do? I would say there's some work to do. And I'm not, I'm not slapping anybody around. Men, are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Wives, are you submitting to your husband's leadership as Christ commands? Begin today. Do we have a Savior who loves us deeply? So deeply that we'll never be able to plumb the depths of His love. He loves both the husband and the wife. And He wants you. Lord God, we, or I conclude this message this morning, knowing just how much I fall short in loving my wife like you love the church. But God, you love me anyway. as much as you love every man and woman who are within the sound of my voice. Lord God, may we truly begin to submit to one another may those who are married from this congregation may they shine brightly in the community and those to those around them. And may those who are not, who do not yet have a spouse, who are widowed, who have been divorced, may they know your love. And may they look to you as the one who is so close to them. As we sing our last song today, Lord God, may we truly understand your love for us. I pray these things in your son's name, who loves us.